0: section number twenty of figures of several centuries this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by adele parry figures of several centuries by arthur simmons section 20 henrik ibsen everything which i have created as a poet ibsen said in a letter has had its origin in a frame of mind and a situation in life. I never wrote because I had to, as they say, found a good subject. Yet his chief aim as a dramatist has been to set a character in independent action and to stand aside, reserving his judgement. This method, the technique of the construction, he says, speaking of what is probably his masterpiece, Ghosts, is it in itself entirely precludes the author's appearing in the speeches. My intention was to produce the impression in the mind of the reader that he was witnessing something real that this moment of most perfect balance was his intention. What was what he achieved in an astonishing way? But his whole life is a development, and we see him moving from point to point, deliberately and yet inevitably, reaching the goal it was with his triumph to reach, then going beyond the goal, because movement in any direction was a necessity in his nature. In Ibsen's letters we shall find invaluable help in the study of his character in this development. The man shows himself in them with none the less disguise because he shows himself unwillingly. In these hard, crabbed, formal, painfully truthful letters, we see the whole narrow, precise, and fanatical soul of the Puritan of art, who sacrificed himself, his friends, his family, and his country to an artistic sense of duty only to be paralleled among those religious people whom he hated and resembled. His creed, as man and as artist, was the cultivation, the realization of self. In quite another sense, that too, was the creed of Nietzsche, and what in Nietzsche was pride, the pride of individual energy, in Ibsen was a kind of humility and a practical deduction from the fact that only by giving complete expression to oneself can one produce the finest work. Duty to oneself, this was how he looked upon it, and though in a letter to Jordan he affirmed, as the highest praise, his life was his best work, to himself it was the building up of the artist in him that he chiefly cared for and to this he set himself with a moral fervour and a scientific tenacity. There was in Ibsen none of the abundance of great natures, none of the ease of strength. He nursed his force as a miser hoards his gold, and does not give you at times an uneasy feeling that he is making the most of himself, as the miser makes the most of his gold by stri- scraping up every farthing. The great thing, he says in a letter of advice, is to hedge about what is one's own, to keep it free and clear from everything outside that has no connection with it he bids brands cultivate a genuine full-blooded egoism which shall force you for a time to regard what concerns you as the only thing of a consequence and everything else as non-existent yet he goes on to talk about benefiting society is conscious of the weight which such conviction and compromise lays upon him yet cannot get rid of the burden as Nietzsche does he has less courage than Yetz, though no less logic, and is held back from a complete realisation of his own doctrine, because he has had so much worldly wisdom and is so anxious to make the best of all worlds. In every new poem or play, he writes, I have aimed at my own personal spiritual emancipation and purification, for a man shares the responsibility and the guilt of the society to which he belongs. This queer entanglement in social bonds on the part of whose main endeavour had always been to free the individual from the conventions and restrictions of society is one of those signs of paraculism which peep out in ibsen again and again the strongest man he says in a letter anticipating the epilogue of one of his plays is he who stands alone but ibsen did not find it easy to stand alone though he found pleasure in standing aloof the influence of his environment upon him is marked from the first he breaks with his father and mother, never writes to them, or goes back to see them, partly because he feels it necessary to avoid contact with certain tendencies prevailing there. Friends are an expensive luxury, he finds, because they keep him from doing what he wishes to do, out of consideration for them. Is not this intellectual sensitiveness the corollary of a practical cold-heartedness? He cannot live in Norway, because, he says, I could never lead a consistent spiritual life there. In Norway, he finds that the accumulation of small details makes the soul small how curious an admission for an individualist for an artist he goes to rome and feels that he has discovered a new mental world after i had been in italy i could not understand how i had been able to exist before i had been there yet before long he must go on to munich because here one is too entirely out of touch with the movements of the day he insists again and again environment has a great influence upon the forms in which the imagination creates and in a tone of half burlesque, but with something serious in his meaning, he declares that wine had something to do with the exaltation of brand and pig and sausages and beer with the satirical analysis of the League of Youth. And he adds, I do not intend by this to place the last mentioned play on a lower level. I only mean that my point of view has changed because here I am in a community well ordered even to weariness. He says elsewhere that he could only have written pig where he wrote it in a year in Soronto because it is written without regard to consequences as i only dare to write far away from home if we trace him through his work we shall see him with a strange docility allowing not only a frame of mind and situation in life but his actual surroundings to mould his work alike in form and in substance if he had never left norway he might have written verse to the end of his life if he had not lived in germany where there is up-to-date civilization to study he would certainly never have written the social dramas if he had not returned to norway at the end of his life the last plays would not have been what they were. I am taking him at his word, but Ibsen is a man who must be taken at his word. What is perhaps most individual is the point of view of Ibsen is his dramas, is the sense of the vast importance of trifles, of the natural human tendency to invent or magnify misunderstandings. A misunderstanding in his main lever of the tragic mischief, and he has studied and diagnosed this unconscious agent of destiny more minutely and persistently than any other dramatist. He found it in himself, we see just this brooding over trifles, this sensitiveness to wrongs, imaginary and much insignificant, in the revealing pages of his letters. It made the suratist of his early years. It made a suratist of non-essentials. A criticism of one of his books sets him taking of wide vengeance, and he admitted in later life that he said to himself, I am ruined, because a newspaper had attacked him overnight. With all his desire to undermine the idea of the state, he besieges kings and governments with petitions for money. And he will confess in a letter, I should very much like to write publicly about the mean behaviour of the government, which, however, he refrains from doing. He gets sore and angry over party and pericural rights and wrongs, even when he is far away from them, and has congratulated himself on the calming and enlightening effect of distance. A Norwegian bookseller threatens to pirate one of his books, and he makes a national matter of it if he says this dishonest speculation really obtains sympathy and support at home it is my intention come what may to sever all ties with norway and never set foot on her soil again how petty how like a hysterical woman that is how in its way of talking of possible trifling personal injustice as if it were a thing of vital and even national moment he betrays what was always the remain narrow as well as bitter in the centre of his being he has recorded it against himself for he spared himself as he proudly and truthfully said no more than others in an anecdote which is a profound symbol during the time i was writing brand i had on my desk a glass with a scorpion in it from time to time the little animal was ill then i used to give it a piece of soft fruit upon which it fell furiously and emptied its poison into after which it was well again does not something of the kind happen with us poets poets no but in ibsen there is always some likeness of the sick scorpion in the glass in one of his early letters to Jordan he had written when i read the news from home when i gaze upon all the respectable and estimable nine mar- narrow-mindedness and worldliness it is with the feeling of an insane man staring at one single hopelessly dark spot all his life ibsen gazed until he found the black spot somewhere but it was with less and less of this angry reforming feeling of the insane man he saw the black spot at the centre of the earth's fruit of the whole apple of the earth and as he became more hopeless he became less angry he learned something of the supreme indifference of art he had learned much when he came to realise that in the struggle for liberty it was chiefly the energy of the struggle that mattered he who possesses liberty he said otherwise than as a thing to be striven for possesses it dead and soulless so that a man who stops in the midst of the struggle and says now i have it thereby shows that he has lost it he had learned still more when he could add to this saying the minority is always right this subtle corollary that a fighter in the intellectual vanguard can never collect a majority around him at the point where i stood when i wrote each of my books there now stands a tolerably compact crowd but i myself am no longer there i am elsewhere farther ahead i hope that man is right he thought who has allied himself more closely with the future the future to ibsen was a palpable thing not concerned merely with himself as an individual but a constantly removing constantly occupied promised land into which he was not content to go alone yet he would always have asked of a follower with Zarathustra, this is my road which is yours his future was to be peopled by great individuals it was in seeking to find himself that ibsen sought to find truth and truth he knew was to be found only within him the truth which he sought for himself was not at all the truth in the abstract but a truth literally officious and able to work out the purpose of his existence that purpose he never doubted the work he had to do was the work of an artist and to this everything must be subservient the great thing is to become honest and truthful in dealing with oneself, not to determine to do this or determine to do that, but to do what one must do because one is oneself. All the rest simply leads to falsehood. He conceives of truth as being above all clear-sighted and to approach the truth as a matter largely of will. No preacher of God or his righteousness or the kingdom to come was ever more centred, more convinced, more impregnably minded every time that he had absorbed a new idea or is constructing a new work of art. His conception of art often changes but he never deviates at any one time from any one conception. There is something narrow, as well as something intense in this certainty, this calmness, this moral attitude towards art. Nowhere has he expressed more of himself than in a letter to a woman who had written some kind of religious sequel to Brand. He tells her, Brand is an ascetic work, pure and simple. What it may have demolished or built up is a matter of absolute indifference to me. It came into being as the result of something which I had not observed but experienced, and it was a necessity for me to free myself from something which my inner man had done with, by giving poetic form to it, and when by this means I had gotten rid of it, my book had no longer any interest for me. It's in the same positive dogmatic way that he assures us that *Peer is a poem, not a satire, the League of Youth is simple comedy and nothing more, Emperor and Galilean, an entirely realistic work, and that in ghosts there is not a single opinion, a single utterance which can be laid to the account of the author.' My intention was to produce the impression in the mind of the reader that he was witnessing something real. It preaches nothing at all. Of Hedda Garbler, he says, it was not really my desire to deal in this play with so-called problems. What I principally wanted to do was to depict human beings, human emotions and human destinies upon a groundwork of the social conditions and principles of the present day. My chief life task, he defines, to depict human characters and human destinies. End of section 20.